Welcome to The Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm Sarah Condon, your host. In just a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-host, RJ Heyman and David Zoll. We come to you every other Friday to explore a few of the places where we currently see grace playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. Glad to have you with us. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Happy, happy Halloween to the two of you. Uh, I've seen pictures of what uh, transpired in Houston uh, this past uh, week, but how did it go for you with your little, your little ones? Oh, it was awesome. We we did Halloween twice because we live in a really intense neighborhood that uh, has a lot of people that I think have a lot of time on their hands. I mean, I love them, but they seem to have a lot of time on their hands because they were worried our children wouldn't be able to do Halloween on Halloween because the weather. So we did a mini Halloween the day before, and then we still did Halloween on Halloween. And because I don't want my children to be traumatized by their childhoods, more than I can already help. Um, when people started showing up to get candy on Halloween, I was like, we have to do this again. So, yeah, we've done, we are done with Halloween. What about you, RJ? You guys have done some incredible uh, family shots in the past. Did you get one this year? We did not. This was, without question, our worst Halloween ever. Oh, no. Uh, <laughs> I know. It was bad. I mean, number one, because there was a legit monsoon that came yeah. through Houston on Halloween, such that, like, my wife wasn't even really sure she could make it home from school. Like she had to take back roads because people's cars were getting flooded, like that Mm. type of thing. Sort of like not, not exactly nothing like Harvey, but you know, it was bad. And then it took me an hour to get home. And then when we got home, our two teenage boys had like so much homework to do that. They're like, yeah, we were supposed to go to a friend's house for a party. And they were like, we don't think we can go. Uh, And then, so we basically just stayed home and handed out candy. Although Marshall had a good time. He really, really, our two-year-old enjoyed opening the door and going, happy Halloween. And then, you know, putting candy into people's uh, baskets. So I think he had a good Halloween. The rest of us, not so much. We do have a family picture because we did an 80s themed uh, joint birthday party with a friend a couple weeks ago. But that is not appropriate to post because I'm wearing short shorts. (laughs) So shorts that would have been appropriate in the 80s. But are not appropriate for Facebook. Not right now. Of the well, 21st it's the tree of a lot of things from the 80s. Yeah, it is. It is. So we do okay have then. the picture, and I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll uh, yes, it will not be posted. We can circulate it privately, though. We can. Yes, that's right. That's right. And then you can blackmail me with it in the future. Yeah. Oh, just add it to the pile. Add That's it to the right. pile. Perfect. Well, speaking of getting blackmailed and shamed, uh, mm. the first thing you sent us, RJ, and it sounds like, Sarah, you'd heard about it too. I, th- I think we'd mentioned it in um, in passing one time or s- somewhere on the podcast, but uh, talking about China's new social credit system, there was uh, All Things Considered reported on this, Stacey Vanek-Smith, about how the Chinese government is piloting something known as the social credit system. Like the credit scoring system we have in the U.S., China's scores use financial information. But China's system also considers information like what you buy and how you treat your neighbors. If you fail to pay your debts, you might find yourself on a sort of blacklist. And then they actually talk to one of the uh, people. This is a man uh, who is a sort of a former coal miner named Lao Duan, who's 42, lives in Shaanxi province in China. And one day he goes online to book a high street, high-speed train ticket to Beijing. 
He puts down his name and payment, but right away the page pops up saying he could not complete the purchase. It said this person is on the untrustworthy list from the court. Uh, one thing that comes along with the blacklist, this untrustworthy list, is that you are barred from high-end consumption, which means that you cannot take a speed train, you cannot fly either. Uh, but then later, when Lao Duan is driving through the center of town, he discovers another aspect of being blacklisted. On one of the electronic billboards by the side of the road, he sees his face. And soon he starts to notice a bunch of his other former colleagues, their faces from the coal industry are also on the blacklist. So he starts calling them, saying, hey, I'm on the list too. He started getting people together, meeting up for dinner. He says these are the only people that he can really be relaxed around. Because actually in society, the widespread attitude towards us, he says, is very resistant. People will think, why are you be here being happy? Why do you still have time to be happy? Why do you not go out and make money to pay back your loan? And then they talk to some lawyers in China who say that by all accounts, getting off the blacklist, even if you've paid your debts, um, it's technically possible, but it just never seems to happen. It sounds like a 1984 kind of thing. Then it, they finish by saying, as for La Tuan, he says he will keep paying off his debt. He has to believe there's a way off this list. Oh, my goodness. I mean, talk brutal. about a, a sermon illustration brought to life in the yeah. most brutal and kind of sad ways. But you also, but I love the collective of, of blacklisted coal miners getting together and that being the only place where you can relax, which is sort of this Sinners Anonymous uh, yeah. vibe. Yeah. Yeah. What, I, did, what that, do you guys think? That total, that, that actually stood out to me more than anything was like that he, I loved that he did that. I mean, I think there are a lot of people who will sort of suffer alone and that he like wanted like a a cohort of sufferers and that they can all be together in that is pretty remarkable um, and hopefully pretty church-like. But I kept thinking of, do you guys watch Black Mirror? So Josh, mm -hmm. my husband, he's like obsessed. I shouldn't say he loves this whole Chinese credit system thing. He's obsessed with it. Like he, he heard about it on maybe Planet Money, one of the other podcasts he listens to. And the woman referenced the Black Mirror episode where this is put into place and you sort of walk around with your phone and you're constantly like grading everyone around you, like giving them stars, which, you know, we're, it feels like we're close to, right? If you take an Uber and you order your groceries online, you've done that twice in one day. Um, but the Black Mirror episode is like this and it, it's such a disturbing episode to watch because of course that show they push things to like it's you know fullest limit and there's this uh moment where she's practicing laughing though the protagonist is practicing laughing in the mirror so that she can be more likable when she's interacting with people and she's one of those people that um god has uh blessed or cursed with a really high-pitched painful to listen to laugh and it is so deeply sad to watch her trying to like make it better in the mirror, you know, like that's Ugh. so like you, you hear about this, like actually being implemented and it's just, it's inescapable. It also, you know, I mean, the planet money thing went into how this is creating a bigger disparity between the haves and the have nots. I mean, it also plays into a lot of stuff. And for me as a Southerner about how, you know, um, black folks were kind of kept down for longer periods of time because there would be this like way, you know, that, that they would be, um, you know, sort of, I don't know if you, it's too much Southern history, but the company store, you would sort of be tied into the company store and you would always be in debt to the company store and you could never get out of debt. So they always kind of owned your land. They always owned your house and they could take it away at any moment. So 
it does feel very new and scary, but it's also an incredibly human sinful impulse to do this to one another. Yeah. It's just scary to see it, uh, you know, actually yeah. put implemented. Like organized. You know, or, yeah. Yeah, organized. Yeah. RJ, what about you? Yeah, I had a variety of reactions. The The first one was that this uh, just struck me as the exact reason why anyone in our country who is slightly right-leaning just can't abide it, can't abide anyone calling themselves a, a democratic socialist. You know, when they hear socialism, this is exactly what they hear. And they're like, no, freedom, freedom. Mm. You know, we don't want we don't want social security numbers. We don't want to register anything. We don't want any record of us anywhere because it will be used to control us, which which always seems a little bit overreactive to me. And then you see it happening in China and you're like, and yet- oh, maybe they have a, maybe they have a point. <laughs> Um, so that was my, uh, that was my first thing. Uh, and then, so my next reaction, interestingly, was similar to the reaction I had around the, all the, um, Snowden stuff when we found out that actually the government is kind of like recording our conversations and our text messages and all that stuff. And my first reaction was, well, I'm not doing anything that bad. You know, so if I'm not doing anything that bad, like, why should I really care? So, like, a little bit of self-righteousness creeping in and me wondering about this guy who's been blacklisted and, like, yeah, feeling kind of sorry for him, but he does owe, like, a million dollars. And somehow, over the course of the past year, he in that story, he's found a way to pay back 300000 of it. So maybe he kind of deserves I totally it. totally had you know, that thought. Maybe yes. I'm better than he is. Maybe I would do well in this system. And then maybe all those people that have wronged me, they would get on the bad list and I would be ascended. <laughs> in all of my righteousness, you know? So I'm not going to lie. I had a little bit of a self-righteous reaction to it. And then my final thing was thinking about uh, another Planet Money episode, because I also, Josh is clearly a very intelligent person because I also listen to that <laughs> podcast. Or I shouldn't say I am because I listen to the same podcast that's that right. he does. That's right. But they did a great thing on bankruptcy about five years ago, which I wrote a little piece on for Mockingbird. And what an amazing thing it, it is that we have bankruptcy in America, mm-hmm. because that's not something that has always existed. And it used to be, like you said, Sarah, like if you were in debt, you went to debtor's prison and you stayed there until you could pay it off. But if you weren't working, you couldn't pay it off, but no one cared, you know, and then your kids had to pay off, your wife had to pay it off, your you know, grandkids had to pay it off and there was no escape. And so we have this thing in America where you can declare bankruptcy, which is basically like forgiveness. And yes, it does prevent you from like owning a house for seven years or something like that. There are are some consequences. It's not, you know, it's not full atonement in the Christian sense, Uh, but it is somewhat Christian. And at the same time, it allows people to uh, be free to take risks to try new things to not live in fear and mm. it made me thankful for our uh, for our bankruptcy system which seems like it's been under assault lately by you know banks and credit card companies which i understand because they probably don't like bankruptcy but for people that are actually trying to live in the world and make mistakes it's a very helpful thing and i say that you know i've never filed for bankruptcy um, but it's nice to know that if I got myself in real, it's real good to trouble, know you can. Yeah. it's an option, mm-hmm, you know, yeah. that I don't have to spend the rest of my life on a blacklist or in jail. Well, it, I, I really do think it's beautiful that the the, oh, the fellowship he's able to experience among his fellow mm-hmm. sinners, it, it the freedom, the kind of fun. And, and I just pick and picture him calling them up. And I know. It's, it's Rather this, laugh uh, with the sinners than cry with the saints. That's right. <laughs> to quote Saint It's this Billy amazing Joel. picture. And I, yeah. I don't think it's, uh, 
I don't think it's um, coincidental that or arbitrary that it has to do with debits and credits. You know, people yeah. always resist that language when it comes to your spiritual life, but uh, this is where the, this is how the human being operates, and. Mm -hmm. You can act like it's not true or you can act like it's reductionist or just simplistic, but I think you're cutting yourself off from, unfortunately, a, a transactional way in which we interact, which I'm grateful that God addresses us at least partly in those terms. Uh, and I, I think that that freedom loud done when he says, you know, he, he has to believe there's a way off this list. And you want to say, why? Why do you have to believe that? Because uh, you might just be digging yourself deeper um, with every He needs someone to pay his moment. debt. He needs someone he to needs, pay his he debt. He needs someone to yeah. pay his to debt. To ransom him. Yeah. yeah. To, well, even to ran yeah, exactly. Yeah. The language of being unworthy, right? And like that they're called the unworthies. Like that that's is is so, um, I mean, it's just so Christian. It's like, isn't everyone, right? Was the first thought that I had. I mean, isn't everyone unworthy? And um, isn't that part of the reason that we gather together Um at church in some ways, because there, there's this moment of acknowledgement that like, this is the place where we were made worthy. This is the place where we're reminded how we're made worthy. So. Oh, I want to make a prediction that, uh, this will serve to grow Christianity in China. Oh, you know, that's you know, so, yes. I want, you know, I actually Christians wondered already about exploding that. in China. Right. Like they say there may be more Christians in China than any other nation on the face of the right. earth right now. Now there are 1.2 billion Chinese, but I would not be surprised if this drove more people into churches, actually. Yeah. So. Mm. Well, there's also there's also a profound uh, confusion about what uh, motivates people to actually change, and is is this really is this simply a way to stratify uh, society, or is it a way to get those people to pay their debts? You right. know, is it a way to sort of reform them? If that's the case, then they maybe would do well to read Alfie Cohn's incredible op-ed that appeared in the. Um, in the New York Times this week, science confirms that people are not pets, <laughs> in which he details the discovery that when we are rewarded for doing something, we tend to lose interest in whatever we had to do to get the reward. When you promise people a reward, they often perform more poorly as a result. The conclusions that rewards frequently kill both interest and excellence have only grown more solid in recent years. And Cohn's got a book about this that's just come out in a new edition. And he talks about it hasn't really stopped parents and teachers from kind of exercising sugar-coated control where we promise rewards to kids who obey and, uh, you know, do well. But here he goes on, he says, questions that stemmed from these basic findings. For instance, what if the reward is really large and luscious? Well, it's apt to do even more damage to your motivation, they, scientists have found. Are rewards destructive because they distract people from the task? Apparently not, because other distractions don't have the same negative effects. Which is worse, giving people a set reward for doing something or making it contingent on how well they do it? The latter is worse by a long shot. Give a bunch of adults or children a puzzle to solve or say a poem to write. Promise half of them a reward if they're successful and then watch as they end up being less creative and less interested in the task than those promised nothing. The trouble doesn't lie with the type of reward, the schedule on which it's presented, or any other detail of how it's done. The problem is the outdated theory of motivation underlying the whole idea of treating people like pets. That is saying, do this and you'll get that. 
The best that carrots or sticks can do is change people's behavior temporarily. We're talking about the law here, everyone. They can never create a lasting commitment to an action or a value and often have the exact opposite effect contrary to hypothesis. That's the phrase that always comes up in these, in these studies. Contrary to hypothesis, this is what human beings are like. Uh, they talk about school attendance. In the case of attendance, it's a lot easier and much less threatening to those in position of authority to reward students and workers for showing up than it is to reconfigure schools and workplaces so that people are more likely to want to show up. It's a very inconvenient finding for those of us with small children. Oh, yes. Uh, uh, yes. And yet, it when it comes to as they say, you can get some. You, the law will change someone's threat of, of punishment, hope of reward can change someone's behavior for a little while. Yeah. Attendance will go up, but the second those rewards uh, go away, they found that attendance dropped even to even worse rates than what it was oh. before. You cannot change a person's heart using carrots and sticks, uh, and the, the motivation is the key issue. the The credit system in China may make may make a few things easier, but ultimately it's not going to change the heart of a, of a, of a, someone who yeah. is Church prone to spend more than they have. Church attendance will, will go way up. <laughs> yeah. What do you think about this, guys? Alfie Cohn. I, I've wanted to invite him to a Mockingbird conference forever. That'd be awesome. Um, so I actually thought of something that happened this past week. We have a, we have a treasure box at home. And if you like go above and beyond in whatever sense I have as judge deemed worthy, um, my favorite line from this is rewards are like punishments and they're ultimately about power. I was like, oh, you know, (laughs) so like I get to judge whether or not you're worthy for the prize box. And um, so, okay, so Annie and Neil were playing outside. Annie, who's four and Neil, who's seven. Annie lost Neil's bouncy ball, like in the grass and they couldn't find it. And, you know, he came in upset. And later, um, Annie was especially kind to Neil or she did so. I can't remember what it was. But I was like, you know what? You go to the treasure. Like, that was great, Annie. Go to the treasure box. So Annie goes to the treasure box. She digs around in there for three minutes. She finds a bouncy ball and then she gives it to Neil. Like, to replace mm. the one that she lost instead of getting something for herself. Oh, wow. Which was very powerful. Like, I was like, wait. Like, it was very powerful for me, but it was also like, I was like, it was interesting to read the thing about the word power because she kind of shifted the power in that moment, right? Like, I was no longer the one, like, bestowing, like, this, oh, you get to get something in your treasure box. She took it as a moment to then give something to her brother and... Because I, I had the thought, I was like, well, that's not how I thought that was going to go down, you know? And when I read this piece, I was like, it probably felt better to Annie to get something and then give it to her brother, whose feelings she'd hurt, than to get something for herself, which is huh. fascinating. Um, I don't know. So I thought, I yeah, I mean, power. It's, uh, what a, it's a real what waste a, what of a, time. What a girl. That Annie, Annie Banana. What, oh, man. I, I, She's... I, I, Last she's I saw her, she's dressed as a, I think, a mermaid elephant or something. Or she was, she's, she was a mermaid, and then she wore her brother's um, giraffe costume. And Annie is like, I'm not kidding. Annie's like six inches taller than everyone else in her class, so the giraffe costume was like complete with a high waters look. It was amazing. Anyway, <laughs> neither here nor there. <laughs> Rutger, I'm trying to figure out if we do this or not. Like whether we, oh. you know, reward our children based on good behavior. Oh. I don't, I don't, 
think we, I don't think we do. Did you do it when they were little though? When you had two little boys? Well, I'm thinking about Marshall, of course, who's two years old. And I don't think we do with him either. I, I think what, I mean, so our struggle right now with him is that he wants to do absolutely everything himself. Like he'll say, Marshall do it a thousand times a day. And if you do it and he wanted to do it, he'll freak out like, no, Marsh, like you open the door, Marshall, do it. You know, oh, no. kind of start, you know so, th- so everything just takes 10 times as long as it needs to. And every so often, like you just got to go somewhere. Like actually yesterday I was taking him to preschool and we had to cross over the parking lot and he really didn't want to do it. Okay, he just didn't want to cross the park. Like, kind of wanted to meander and just kind of take his time and probably drive me a little bit crazy. So he's just doing his thing. So finally, I'm like, okay, this is over. I, I give him a count of three. And then I pick him up by one of his arms and I just carry him across the, the parking lot. And he freaks out and crumples down. Marshall, do it. Marshall, do it. And I'm like, what do I do here? So I allow him to cross back over to the other side of the parking lot and then do it again himself. And then he goes to school happy, you know, Um, which I don't know. I I feel like I should put my foot down more than I do, but I also want to encourage independence and I want him to want to do what he wants to do. So I don't know. It is driving us totally insane. It's driving my wife completely insane. But at the same time, he is, he does have some sense of self-empowerment. He also has like two brothers that are so much older than he is. And so, I I mean, more than, more than I would think a child who had like a a four-year-old or a five-year-old sibling, he's like, wait, you know, I want to, I want to be in it with everybody. Like, he I don't also know. uses it to control us, you know, because he'll say he wants us to do something, then he'll do it. Then he'll like, no, don't do that. So we won't. And then he'll be like, no, do that. No, don't do that. No, do that. So it's just like, <laughs> I mean, little, that's just like he's erotic the puppet master. And, and, and we're, uh, we call, we call our two year old sire. I mean, it's, you were speaking, you could not be speaking my language more right now. I'm almost about to start crying. This is a little too close to home because I, I, I'm really having struggling with the, the fact that my son is just extremely uh, strong willed when it comes to this kind of thing. Yeah. And uh, I've, I've heard, we've tried to, we even tried the other day, we we're so at our wits' end that we tried to do a timeout. And for, for, for a two year old, it doesn't, they don't, they don't understand consequences. There's no reward, punishment. It doesn't really make sense. They're All they know. Out what they want and they want it right we now. They're the fresh first out of time too. We did the step, like go sit on the step. Didn't and it work. Kind of worked a little, little tiny bit, but I don't know. I just I want to give the kid freedom, and I don't want to tell him to do, and I don't want to bring the thunder. But sometimes you just gotta live life, you know. Like we can't spend twenty minutes like walking out the front door. <laughs> I know? I Except hear when you. We do. With Except when we do. Every fiber so. of my being. I think that uh, it 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 relates a little bit to the Dorothy Martin stuff we were talking about last time, though. Yeah. Are we are we? What about us? We we're we're thinking of ourselves as parents. What about what when about we're, we're the children? <laughs> if you want to get to it to to where it really hits home, is this is how a lot of religious people think that if you. Uh, reward of heaven, uh, yes. penalty yes. of hell. This yes. is how you motivate people towards the Christian yes. life. And it's simply not, I mean, fear will work for a little while. Uh, mm-hmm. and, um, but it won't, it, it's not enough to change a person's heart. And this is why I think Christ talking about the, the motivation, the internal life, you know, so explicitly is, um, one of the great things that abides with you over time that uh, God cares about the heart and he's, it, your motivation matters. And if you really want someone, uh, if someone's only coming to church because they're afraid, I sometimes 
tell them, you know, um, take a break. Um, yeah. And just see what happens. Yeah. I, I uh, actually think the crux here is not that fear doesn't work. It's that fear is damaging. I mean, that's what we see in this research is that it's actually damaging to us. It actually wanting, backfires. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, and we, and we know people, I know people in my life who have been damaged by that kind of a theology and it, um, it does permanent damage to their relationship with the church. Like it's deeply sad. So. Mm-hmm. And we can't get away from it. And I have a, a personal story about this. Um, a few months back, I was hanging out, you know, with a um, member of our congregation um, who's very smart, very well read. He's seen a lot of stuff, like a lot of bad, disturbing stuff. And I think, and the way that he has dealt with that is basically, and he would say this to some degree, becoming a deist. You know mm-hmm. that he it is is very difficult for him to believe in a God who intervenes in his life or the life of the world, um, given all that goes on down here, because let's face it, things are pretty messed up down here. Right. And so he's talking about this and he, he's very intellectual and he's talking, being very heady, um, and how God hasn't intervened. And, and then I just sort of asked him, I said, well, I, I said, my prayer for you is that God would answer a prayer of yours, that you would pray something and that something would happen in your life that would be unmistakable, that you would know that he is with you, that he loves you, that he's on your side, that, that you'd experience his presence in an unmistakable way. So I said, what do you need? Like, what do you want to, what would you pray for? And he just started crying and he, and he, and he cried and he said, I would pray for my, my family. I would pray for my, um, my son who is, um, bipolar and can't get his life together. I would pray for my other son who um, we don't have a relationship anymore. Um, I would pray for my ex-wife, you know, who left me. Um, And then he said something striking. He said, and it was just a little throwaway line, but, you know, uh, sometimes I think that God is punishing me. Mm. So even this guy who has done everything he possibly can to escape the idea of a God who intervenes can't help but feel Mm. that the pain of his life is the result of judgment for something that he's done. You know, and so I tried to speak some hope and peace into his life and just say, you know, that's not true. Like, God is so on your side that he came down to love you and to to die for you, you know, and to take all of your pain, um, on himself. Um, and I don't think that made much of a difference, but, um, but that was just striking what you said, Dave, like we cannot help but get away from the sense that, um, we've done something wrong and that we're being, or that we've done something right. You know, Mm -hmm. if things are going well, it's because I did something right. Mm -hmm. If things are going badly, Mm -hmm. it's because I did something wrong, but it's probably Mm -hmm. more, more often the second than the first. So, you know, I ran the um, book table, which is, by the way, I can retire now because this is like the best thing I've ever done in ministry. I, I got to run, run the book table when Fleming Rutledge spoke at clergy conference. And um, so there was this long line of people there. And there was this uh, clergy woman in our diocese, I know, who has just who Fleming knew from years ago, who is going through a lot, a lot. And. She, you know, I was sort of told when with the signing to kind of move things along, you know, um, and I and I know this person. I was like, I'm not going to push this. I'm just going to like stand back and people can wait. And I thought, what is what is Fleming going to do? Like what's about to happen? And so Fleming's like sitting at the, you know, she's so beautifully appointed. Right. She's got her desk and she's got her books and she's sitting there. And um, she uh, 
she stopped, she just dropped the pen. She moved the book to the side. She stood up and she reached out her hands to pray with this woman. And it was such a powerful, um, I don't know. It was like, oh, this is what we do. Oh, this is who we are, you know, in the midst of, of someone feeling punished or like there's no like there's just no reason. Like they're trapped in like some scary story in the Bible they can't get out of. Oh, this is what we do. We I mean, you know, we we call again on God. So, yeah, I prayed with him and I actually there was something about his story that touched me and I, 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 I cried. Actually, I think I freaked him out a little bit. Oh. Yeah, but um. Well, well, that's a beautiful though. I mean, I, I, I don't want to say that you don't. We don't have hope in heaven, or we don't have right. some kind of sense of you know consequence. Uh, that that is that really preaches to people who are who've had something terrible going on in their life, or mm-hmm. um, or the fact that you know we believe. What it what it was it, like Luau Don? We believe that someone has paid our debts, but the debts are real. You know, we're not we're not we're not pretending that there's we're sort of all we're, we're something we're not. Um, but it that kind of um, the, where where our discussion sort of leads is to something I read by Father Stephen Freeman. We we've talked about him quite a bit. He's an Orthodox priest, I think, in Tennessee somewhere, and he wrote something mm-hmm. this week. Um, you know, we, we we've mentioned him a lot. It seems like there's there's just an enormous amount of overlap, but he also you know then he'll write something about orthodoxy that'll be like, wait, what? But anyway. Um, we'll be like, Saint who? I don't, huh? what? <laughs> the off, what? Theosis? Um, but he wrote something yeah. called Existential Despair and Moral Futility. And he actually fields a couple of the um, uh, hesitancy reservations that I get, I've heard people express about Mockingbird all the time. And I thought he did it really well. Mm-hmm. He says, a couple years back, a comment was posted on social media that described my writing as consisting of existential despair and moral futility. It was not meant with kindness. But then he goes on to explain how he thinks it's both true what they're saying, but also incomplete. And this is what he says. Our life is fragile and exists only as a precious gift. We have no existence in and of ourselves and are thus entirely... Uh, thus utterly contingent beings. This rather obvious conclusion has been frequently reinforced over the course of my life and ministry. I've buried hundreds of people. Death is a fact of life. However, our culture maintains a pretense and delusion of self-existence, even imagining that we somehow invent ourselves. It is a good marketing strategy as we sell mounds of trash for people to use in their efforts at self-definition. He says, I do not despair of life and existence itself, except in the sense that it is anything other than pure gift. As such, to stand at the edge of the abyss of non-existence seems to me to be among the sanest efforts ever undertaken. We cannot possibly understand who and what we are until we also consider the fact of our death. Those who struggle to believe that there might be such a thing as life after death have failed to ponder how absurdly improbable life before death truly is. Our existence shouts the reality of a giver of life, all life. Our non-existence proclaims the emptiness of any claims to the contrary. I hope in God. In him there is no despair, but only in him. I've also caught some flack for suggesting that we make very little progress of the moral sort in our lives. The track of salvation is not, by and large, one of moral improvement. It was assumed by many that I did not think moral improvement was to be possible or even desirable, but that is not the case. 
This is what he says. He says, the moral life, if rightly understood, cannot be measured by outward actions. The Pharisees in the New Testament were morally pure in an outward sense, but inwardly were, quote, full of dead men's bones. When morality is measured by dead bones, it is still nothing more than death. Human effort cannot make what is dead to live. Only God can do such a thing. Repentance is the primary effort of our life, or the way up is the way down. The spiritual life is a paradox. The excellence of the Pharisees was met with condemnation from Christ. The emptiness of the weak and sinful was met with mercy and healing. Their acknowledged weakness made the working of the power of God effective in their lives. What passes for a, quote, moral life in our culture is little more than the successful internalization of middle-class behavior. But it is necessary, I think, to see the emptiness of our efforts, moral futility. Just as we cannot make ourselves to live, neither do we make ourselves better persons. An improved corpse is still a corpse. Our repentance is born out of the revelation of our emptiness and the futility of life apart from God. Of course, existential despair and moral futility are not my self-description. They are terms chosen by a detractor. I believe that mud not only can become a God, but that it has many times. This is the work of God who, of God who hears our cries and works within us, doing what he alone can do, just as he alone gives us the life we live and breathe at every moment. It is not despair because every moment of our present gifted existence shouts and proclaims the goodness of God, the author of being. It is not futility because with God, all things are possible. But apart from him, we can do nothing. That nothing is indeed despair and futility. A little light, you know, a little lightness to end Mike this podcast. Drop. Yeah, Mike, I know. It's a, it's sort of a, um, it's a sermon that he's giving here. That uh, yeah, totally. It's yeah. Um, beautiful in the sense that yeah. he's pushing uh, the people think that. Um, to speak of low anthropology, to speak of that we cannot do better on our own. I, this, I had the experience this past week of teaching a class at our church about foolishness for Christ. And I was talking about the Heidelberg Disputation, which has just had its 500th anniversary. And, you know, when Luther talks about our best, our best works being deadly sins, and what does that mean? And everyone sort of, you saw the looks <gasps> on people's faces. And you want to say, okay, okay, okay. This doesn't mean that it's not good to, you know, help the elderly across the street. What it means is that it's much more tempting to trust in yourself, uh, in your good works, um, than it is in, when you're in bad, when you do bad things. That uh, if what God is looking for is naked trust, we'll be much more tempted to trust in ourselves to the extent that we're doing good things. And so, and to a certain extent, the the way that you get to um, the way that you find God is the, the, is the way down. It's what's the way up is the way down. That God, Sherry, you're the one who always says grace flows to the bottom of the hill uh, or mm-hmm. to the bottom of the trough. I, I, mm-hmm. I was thinking about how radical but how beautiful of a statement that is, and yet I also hate it in the same time. And mm-hmm. Stephen Freeman is um, really talking about the 200-proof kind of variety of, of grace and uh, mercy. So... It reminded me of two things. Um, One was one of my favorite passages of scripture, which I'm not sure if I've quoted here before. I probably have, so my apologies. But it's um, Romans 8, which uses that exact word, futility, where Paul says um, the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of the one who created it. In other words, God has subjected the creation to futility in the hopes that the creation will be liberated from its bondage to decay and enter into the freedom of the glorious children of light. Mm. And I love that because it says there's a 
that yes, life is futile, but there's a purpose behind it and there's a hope attached to it and that there's a freedom that comes with understanding the futility of life. Um, so I love that passage. And then, of course, also um, what Gerhard Forda wrote, I think, in his little essay on sanctification, where he said, and he's now deceased, but this was towards the end of his life, he was a seminary professor. And some of his students said, um, Dr. Forda, now that you are so, you know, been Christian for so long and are so spiritually mature, do you, do you feel sanctified? You know, do you feel better? And he said, well, you know, I don't have as much energy as I used to, so I don't sin quite as much. He's like, but I don't think senility and holiness are the same thing, uh, <laughs> but, but he did, which is amazing. But he said, what I do have is more, uh, a greater sense of God's love for me as I am. Um, and that feels a little bit like holiness. So it's not that I'm sinning less, it's that I have a greater sense of God's love for me as I am. And that fills me with joy, hope, peace, love, sort of all those fruits of the Spirit. So I love that vision of sanctification, not that we're progressing, but that we're resting in what uh, God has done for us and his love for us. So I, this article is amazing, Dave. This Greek Orthodox article is incredible. Mm -hmm. Eastern Orthodox, whatever. <laughs> What? Sarah, what do you think? Um, well, it's funny. So you sent this and somebody who I only know through Facebook, an Episcopal priest who I've recently become friends with, had somehow found my low anthropology is my love language piece that I wrote for the website and had like tagged me in it and put it up today. And I really feel like this guy and I could take our show on the road. You know what I mean? Like Donnie and Marie Osmond style. Just talk about low anthropology. Him with his beard. beard him with his beard. Me with my very like colorful Protestant lady clothes, you know? Um, I don't, I mean, I loved reading this in a, it, from a more Orthodox perspective was really interesting because it is a lot of the same stuff that we say. Um, this actually spoke personally to me, um, well, I shall say, Dave, when you were reading this, I was like, you can't cry. Why are you crying right now? Um, because um, this is like, when I hear this stuff, this is really where joy is for me, which is a very strange thing for some people to think about. But when I hear that, um, that, that my efforts are futile and that I am loved, um, that's a, that's a, that, that is where relief is for me. I mean, I was at the hospital a few weeks ago visiting someone who was dying and, um, could hear and, um, but couldn't respond. And I made sure to say, just to talk about how loved this person was, like how much Jesus loves this person. Cause that's a thing that, ha that we cannot hear enough. You know, I, um, have a colleague who actually commented, um, not someone I work with on staff here, but another Episcopal priest, like it's not our job to make people less scared of the unknown. And I'm like, I know. That's right? absolutely our job. I was like, um, <laughs> I feel like that's my job, but maybe that's not your job. I don't know. Um, and like to, to, to step in and say, I mean, in that moment of, of finality of, of death, like that you, like, it's still true. Like even now it's still true. Like everything you failed at and everything you couldn't do, like you're still loved, you're still forgiven. It's still been done on your behalf. Like we cannot hear that enough. Mm. And the other way that this spoke to me was, you know, in the aftermath of the horrible shooting in Squirrel Hill at the Tree of Life Synagogue, 
to read, I mean, what what this um, this Orthodox priest is saying here, he actually says, we work rightly in our own, in our human sphere, doing what is humanly possible. And when I found out about the shooting, I was home with my children. Um, Josh was doing something at the church and I was weeping and I had the radio on and I was like trying to figure out what was happening. And my kids came over and they were like, we really want to try on our Halloween costumes. And our son this year went as one of those like wind men that they put in the parking lots of used car lots. And it is the funniest damn thing <laughs> I have ever seen. And like you turn it on and like his arms are everywhere. And like he's, and I was just like, this I can do. Like I can be with these children and I can tell them how loved they are. And I can tell them how loved everyone is like against all odds, like this I can do. So like when I read this, um, this piece, I was like, he is like literally speaking to me, you know? Wow. So, wow. I just want to underline how funny that costume does oh look. I, I, I don't know. I it's... kept every single thing he does in the costume is funny too. <laughs> So it's like I, I imagine it because he's you know a six seven year old boy is so eight eight years old and he's seven he doesn't want to be laughed at uh, but it is no very funny. he thinks it's the coolest thing ever like every time he would bend over to get candy he'd like tilt over just from the- well yeah I was I was also th- I remember talking to someone who had, had heard preaching in our church for a long time and he said he, he said Dave you, I got to ask you something do you think people are basically always in existential crisis based on the way that you guys mm-hmm. preach you do you think that people are always in existential crisis and I you know. My honest answer is yes, I do think that. I think that people are always basically in existential crisis, wondering what's it all for, what's it all about, who am I, what's going on. Um, But if not acute, then someone there is in existential crisis. And so what, what, and maybe it's the role of the, you know, the Orthodox have a pretty highfalutin uh, understanding of what it means to be a priest, but maybe it's the role of people in ministry to sort of stand on the abyss. And to um, it, that's the really uncomfortable part, is to not only stand on the abyss of the fact that we're all going to die, despite the fact that everyone is so up in arms about this, that, or the other, and, and in the light of eternity, these things lose a little bit of their power, what, what people are so upset about. But then also to... Um, to realize yourself that your own moral efforts are really um, dead bones, you know that it the work of you can you can identify and see the work of God in people's lives that doesn't it happens independent of their effort, and you can celebrate that. But to to constantly be going into yourself and realizing that uh, you yourself are subjected to futility apart from God, that your your own hope and your own abilities to do things really doesn't have much of a um, future. Uh, that's exhausting, and I think that that's really um, it's a gift that occasionally we can give other people. But it, this man, I know, has given it to me on a number of occasions. And maybe it's because he's Orthodox and he has the, the whole nine. You know, he's got the beard and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's almost an unexpected vessel for me. But I've I found that I'm grateful for Father Freeman uh, for his for his honesty here, and I hope that. Um, uh, I'm glad that it's out there and it really uh, speaks to me personally. Yeah. Wasn't it, was it Fleming, Sarah, at Clergy Conference who said that the point, she thought the point of preaching was to move people to a point of crisis. Yes. Like that, that's actually the entire point yeah. of it. You know, yeah. it's not to tell bedtime stories. Yeah. It is to bring people face to face with yeah. the insanity and unmanageability 
of their lives, which is kind of always the case. And, yeah. and um, you know, Dave, I remember your dad telling that same story when he was uh, at one of his calls and someone coming up to him and, and um, saying, does it always have to, you know, why is it so dark? Why does it have to be so dark? And and, and, and I'm saying, well, maybe, maybe there's a great truth here. Maybe there actually is a great truth of human of human life that, that people don't, they don't want to look at, they don't want to think <laughs> about, they want to gloss over. Yeah. Um, but we want to talk about the weightier, Things and um, in the darkness is where the where the light shines. I mean, that's where the light shines. Exactly, exactly. Um, yeah. So uh, let me just say before we end. I mean, what a wonderful. Uh, I commend that article to everyone to sort of read and reread and reread. Uh, I'm going to post it on it next week if I uh, get the chance. But um, the what happened in the Mockingbird world this past week was that uh, not only are the Oklahoma City files up, and everyone has got to listen to Stephen Paulson's first talk and Kerry Willard's talk. They really are just as fabulous as can possibly be, and, and the amount of inspiration I've heard people drawing from them is really God-given and exciting. Uh, but secondly, the Mocking app dropped. It's only for iOS X devices, so Apple devices. That's because um, these things are incredibly expensive, and the only people we know who are willing to cut us an enormous deal uh, are are only designed for Apple. And plus, 83% of our traffic comes from those devices. But it's free. It's on the iTunes store. You can listen to The Mockingcast that way. You can listen to all of our other podcasts. And you can read the app and the entire Mockingbird devotionals on there. And definitely commend that to you. Tell everyone you know. Um, and uh, you know, it allows you to share things. But do write a review if you get a chance, because that helps more people get it. Um, so that's all. Uh, I'm grateful to all of you for listening and happy Halloween and happy Reformation Day and happy November. Happy All Saints Day. All Saints! Happy Woo. Dio de los Muertos. I mean, like, let's just haul them all out, guys. There's a lot going on. Happy There's bearable weather on. in Houston Day. <laughs> <laughs> okay, guys. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.mbird.com. And we'd always love to hear from you at info at mbird.com. Audio production for The Mockingcast is provided by the Narrativo Group. And if you like what you've heard, please do drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. Until next time. Praise the Lord.